0: The date is November 2nd, 1930. It appears as if the entire nation of Ethiopia has gathered on the steps of St. George's Cathedral in the capital city of Addis Ababa to witness the coronation of the new emperor. Several delegates representing the crowned heads of Europe, as well as emissaries from such disparate nations as Egypt, Turkey, Japan, and the United States, line the first few rows inside the church. Before the pulpit, his back to the crowd, a short yet imposing figure adorned in imperial raiment receives the religious and official rites of his new title from an ornately robed priest. Upon reciting the blessings, the priest makes the sign of the cross, and an attendant steps forward with a cushion upon which rests a heavily embellished crown. Slowly, gingerly, the priest places the crown upon the head of the man standing before him and declares him emperor. The berobed figure turns to face those assembled, who burst into applause and cheers of encouragement. The man is 37-year-old Haile Selassie, and he has just become the reigning monarch of Ethiopia. Unbeknownst to those in attendance, the coronation of Tafari Makonnen, better known as Haile Selassie, on that fateful Sunday afternoon would signal the dawning of a new era for the East African nation. Under his 44-year rule, he would see the country through Italian occupation, the ravages of World War II, its expansion following the conflict, and its rapid modernization through a series of socio-political reforms which he helped to conceive, develop, and bolster. Under his leadership, Ethiopia became one of the founding members of the United Nations, and his rule even sparked a religious movement half a world away on the island nation of Jamaica. But as you'll see, it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies. Just who was this towering figure? What were his accomplishments and failures? And should he be revered as a hero or a tyrant? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host. Join me as we seek to answer these and other questions on this week's episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. The man who would one day be known as Haile Selassie was born Tafari Makonnen on July 23, 1892, just outside the walled city of Harar in Ethiopia's Ngersagoro province. Descended from the great early 19th century King Saleh Selassie of Shewa, a former autonomous region within Ethiopia, he traced his royal lineage through his paternal grandmother. As with all Ethiopian royals, tradition as well as imperial doctrine dictated that he was the descendant of the biblical King Solomon, as well as the Queen of Sheba, a heritage that can be traced back to the country's first ruler, Menelik I, who reigned some time in the 10th century BC. It was through said lineage that he was ultimately able to ascend to the throne. Upon receiving a formal education in his native Harar, the young Tafari was appointed Deyasmach, literally commander of the gate, the equivalent of a count in European royalty, on November 1st, 1905, at the age of 13. Shortly after this, in 1906, his father passed away but he was soon granted governorship over two important realms that of selale to which he had ancestral ties through his mother's lineage later that same year and part of sidamo province in southern ethiopia in nineteen o seven though these responsibilities set him on the path to leadership he was still able to continue his studies With the death of his brother, Yelma, in 1907, however, the governorate of his native Harar was left open. The reigning monarch at the time, Emperor Menelik II, appointed his trusted general, Balcha Safo, to the position. But Safo's administration proved weak and ineffective, and with the emperor falling ill in 1910, the position was awarded to Tafari himself. A year later, at just 19 years of age, Tafari married Menen Asfaw, the niece of the then heir to the throne, Li Iyasu. Speaking of Li Iyasu, it was he who served as emperor following the death of Menelik II in nineteen thirteen. Though Iyasu was given the designation of emperor, he was never officially crowned. On top of that, he wasn't well-liked by those in the imperial court or by the Ethiopian people. His disrespect towards his fellow noblemen and noblewomen, as well as his reckless, scandalous behavior, made him an easy target for disdain. But what single-handedly ended his chances of ever becoming officially recognized as emperor was his desire to convert to Islam. An Ethiopian Orthodox Christian from birth, this act was seen as treasonous, so much so that, on September 27, 1916, he was deposed after serving only three years on the throne. But what does this event have to do with Haile Selassie, you might ask? Well, the extent to which the young tafari was involved in Iyasu's deposition remains the subject of debate. Though he recalled the event that led up to this ascension to the throne in his memoirs, it's unclear whether he partook directly in Iyasu's ousting. It's important to note that he did benefit from it, however, as he was made heir apparent and crown prince as a result. Iyasu's aunt Zuditu, in the meantime, served as empress. The transition was made official on February eleventh, 1917, when Zuditu was crowned. Though she pledged to rule justly through her regent, that is, Tafari himself, she was more than just a temporary sitting monarch. She had the final word on all matters executive, judicial, and legislative, as it were. Tafari was tasked with daily administration, and, though the more visible of the two, he held little sway over the combined forces of provincial governors, the minister of war, and the empress herself. But his leadership was not without fruit. He adopted the policy begun by Menelik II of gradual modernization and secured Ethiopia's position as one of the founding countries of the then newly established League of Nations. This latter move proved controversial amongst the Ethiopian populace, though, as being admitted into the organization meant promising to eradicate slavery, a practice that had been in place for centuries in the East African nation, and existed well into Tafari's reign as emperor as well. His appointment as Prince Regent was followed, seven years later, by an extensive ten-city tour of North Africa, Europe, and the Middle East that included stops to Alexandria, Jerusalem, Athens, Paris, and London. The main reason for the trip was for Ethiopia to gain access to the sea, which involved diplomatic relations with both the French and British, who had colonial holdings in East Africa at the time. Though this vision would not be realized, the trip by no means proved fruitless. During his time abroad, Tafari and his retinue visited several hospitals, schools, churches, and factories, all of which would prove vital in the modernization of the country, which was based in part on the European model. But Tafari was naturally aware of their colonial interests, and would later require that all business ventures in his country possess partial local ownership to ensure that colonization would prove impossible. Still, each country he visited was charmed and impressed by Tafari and his dignitaries, who played themselves up by gifting a pride of lions to the President and Prime Minister of France, King George V of Britain, and the Jardin Zoologique, Zoological Garden, in Paris. The media ate it all up, and celebrated the Crown Prince's visit as the, quote, Oriental dignitary of Ethiopia with their rich, picturesque dress, unquote. Tafari's appointment as regent wasn't without its challenges, however. In 1928, the former governor of Harar, Balcha Safo, questioned the young prince's authority and traveled to the capital at Addis Ababa armed with a sizable military force. In response, Tafari consolidated his provincial holdings, though many of those appointed to positions of power by Menelik II refused to abide by the new order. Safo, now the governor of Sidano province, proved especially stubborn. When Safo was summoned to the capital as a result, he, rather insultingly, brought a large army with him. To add salt to the wounds, he provided tribute to Empress Zudita, but none for Tafari. On February 18th that year, fed up with Safo's lack of respect, Tafari had won Casa Darga buy off Safo's army and arranged to have him deposed as governor by Tafari's own son-in-law, Dasta Demtu. But the empress, easily swayed by Safo's tribute, soon learned of the regent's plot and threatened to have him tried for treason. What followed was an attempted coup d'etat between the empress's personal guard and those of Tafari, with the latter's forces emerging victorious. Not only that, but the public and police aligned themselves with the regent as well. So it was that, on October 7th, 1928, the empress relented and crowned him Negus, Amharic for king. But this act proved controversial from the start. Never in Ethiopia's vast history had two monarchs occupied the same territory. In previous cases, one would assume control of a different part of the empire. But, with Zudita and Tafari asserting dominance over the exact same places, conservative factions within the country rose up to redress this apparent slap in the face to Ethiopian royalty. Thus the so named Ras Wele rebellion took place. Wele, the empress's husband and governor of Begemder province in the northwest, raised an army and marched toward the capital of Addis Ababa. On March 31, 1930, his forces were met by those of Tafari and were defeated in the ensuing Battle of Anchem. Wele was killed in action. Shortly thereafter, on April 2nd that same year, Empress Zudita also passed away, likely from a combination of a broken heart as well as a flu-like fever or complications with diabetes. Whatever the case, no other opposition standing in his way, Tafari rose to assume the throne of Ethiopia, and, as previously stated, was officially crowned Emperor Haile Selassie, the name meaning Might of the Trinity in Amharic, on November 2nd, 1930, to great fanfare both domestically and abroad. Selassie's first order of business was to draft a constitution, the first ever in Ethiopian history, which he introduced on July 16, 1931. Though it kept power within the nobility, it nonetheless introduced some democratic legislation that would allegedly make for a smoother transition to eventual democratic rule. At the same time, he introduced several reforms based upon what he'd witnessed on his trip to Europe as Prince Regent. As a result, schools and the police force were strengthened. Slowly but surely, the country was becoming modernized. It was during this time that the new emperor became a symbol of African independence. As Ethiopia was one of the few African nations not colonized by Europe, Selassie's authority showed Africans that they could maintain autonomy and control over their ancestral lands. Unknowingly, the emperor was paving the way for Africa's liberation from colonialism. By 1935, Selassie's empire was on the rise, becoming a world power in its own right. Its borders had expanded with the addition of the former Ethiopian sovereign state known as the Sultanate of Jima in 1932, following the death of its leader, Sultan Aba Jifar II. Gradual modernization virtually guaranteed it a spot amidst the promises and progresses of the 20th century. On top of that, it was one of the founding members of the fledgling League of Nations, and, overall, the people were satisfied with the emperor's rule so far. But there was trouble brewing. As fascist Italy's imperialistic ambitions increased, dictator Benito Mussolini began looking to Africa, not just to hop onto the European colonial bandwagon, but to also avenge the military defeats his country had suffered in the Italo-Abyssinian War some 40 years prior, a conflict that pegged Italy against Ethiopia for control over the East African nation, and in which Selassie's own father had served as a general. Italy already held neighboring Eritrea and Somaliland, part of what's now Somalia, and Ethiopia would serve as a natural, as well as the perfect, bridge in which to link the two colonies into one massive Italian protectorate. Despite Ethiopia's standing in the League of Nations, the latter of whose laws ensured collected security for its members, Italy nonetheless invaded the country in the autumn of 1935. To make matters worse, a scandal of sorts broke out when it was revealed that Ethiopia's allies had been appeasing Italy behind the scenes. Mobilizing his troops, Selassie made for the north of the country and set up headquarters outside the city of Dese in the Wolo province. On October 3rd that same year, he delivered a rousing speech to his armies, essentially encouraging them to fight to the last man to ensure the safety of their homeland. By November, however, the invasion had slowed considerably. Seizing the opportunity, the emperor launched what was known as the Christmas Offensive, in which his troops stationed in the north forced the Italians back and into defensive positions. But the victory was short-lived. The opening days of 1936 saw the First Battle of Tembien, in which the Ethiopian Offensive was brought to a halt, and the ensuing battles of Amba, Aradam, and Shire, as well as the Second Battle of Tembien, resulted in the defeat and decimation of Selassie's forces deployed to the northern part of the country. Faced With the magnitude of the situation, the Emperor himself led the remainder of his troops to the Northern Front and, on March 31st, launched a vicious counterattack against the Italians in the Battle of Maichu. In the end, the Ethiopian forces were defeated and left to scatter in disarray, but the enemy trailed them in hot pursuit, attacking from the air as well as the ground with a mixture of local tribesmen from both the Raya and Azebo tribes. Crushed by this defeat, Selassie returned to the capital at Addis Ababa, but not before completing a solo pilgrimage to the churches at Lalibela, one of the holiest sites in Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity, for spiritual rejuvenation, and perhaps divine guidance. Once back in the capital, an emergency session of the Council of State was called to order, in which it was ultimately agreed that, since Addis Ababa could not be defended, the government in the meantime would regroup and reconvene in the town of Gore in the deep south, while the emperor and his family would depart for French Somaliland, and from there, press on to Jerusalem and British Mandate Palestine, an intentional and highly symbolic choice of destination, as Selassie traced his roots back to the biblical King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Not everyone agreed that the imperial family should retreat in the face of such dire circumstances, though. At that self-same council of state session, it was hotly debated whether the public would perceive Selassie's proposed exile as cowardice. Some thought that he and the imperial family should relocate with the government to Gore. Still others argued in his favor, stating that, by escaping, he could present his case to the League of Nations in Geneva, Switzerland. While the emperor's exile was not a unanimous decision, it is what ultimately won out. So it was that, after appointing his own cousin, Ras Imru Haile Selassie, as Prince Regent in his absence, he disembarked for French Somaliland in the early morning hours of May 2nd, 1936. Just three days after Selassie's escape, Italian troops under the leadership of Marshal Pietro Badoglio arrived in Addis Ababa, and with Mussolini declaring it an Italian province. In addition, the King of Italy, Vittorio Emanuele III, was proclaimed the new Emperor of Ethiopia. For the first time in its long history, the East African nation had fallen to an outside force. Meanwhile, now in exile, Selassie and his family first made the voyage to British Mandate Palestine, present-day Israel, where, disembarking at the northern port city of Haifa, they made their way to Jerusalem, where they maintained a residence. It was there that he and his retinue began drawing up their case for the League of Nations, which was approved by the organization on May 12, 1936. That same day, Italy withdrew its League delegation— this coming just days after Benito Mussolini declared the rise of a quote-unquote new Italian empire. From British Mandate Palestine, Selassie and his entourage made the trek to Gibraltar, a British possession on the southern tip of Spain directly across the strait from Morocco, where they were transferred onto a British liner bound for London. By mid-June, the imperial family had arrived in Geneva, Switzerland, and upon arriving at the League of Nations headquarters, the emperor was given the floor. No sooner was he announced than he was greeted by boos and jeers from the Italian journalists who had gathered to report on the event. To make matters worse, a Romanian delegate named Nicolai Titulescu rose from his seat and shouted, To the door with the savages! Both he and the journalists were escorted out of the chamber, and Selassie, after patiently waiting for the din to die down, delivered his speech. Though fluent in French, the League's official language, he had chosen to deliver the oration in his native Amharic, which he felt would be more heartfelt and powerful. Addressing the council, he pled his case, stating that, while his confidence in the League was absolute, his people were being slaughtered. He pressed on, noting that those selfsame European states that had claimed to be in Ethiopia's favor were now refusing to provide them with arms and defense, but were, however, aiding Italy, the latter of whom had, by that point in time, begun using chemical weapons on both military and civilian targets within the East African nation. My own small people of 12 million inhabitants, he said, without arms, without resources, could never withstand an attack by a large power such as Italy, with its 42 million people and unlimited quantities of death-dealing weapons, He assured the council that Italian aggression threatened not just his own country, but all small states, and that such small states will be forced into submission or else reduced to rubble if collective action was not taken. God and history will remember your judgment, he concluded, implicating the council directly. Some in attendance that day recalled that it was one of the finest and most stirring speeches of the 20th century. With his emotional speech, Selassie became a household name and important anti fascist symbol throughout the world virtually overnight. Time magazine even named him Man of the Year and placed his image on the cover. But, despite his pleas, the League of Nations only agreed to partial sanctions on Italy, the like of which proved ineffective. It's believed that this debacle ultimately led to the League's eventual disintegration, though it would reemerge and rebrand following World War II under a new name, the United Nations. Though his trip to Geneva proved in vain, Selassie and his family remained in exile, spending the next five years in Bath, England at the Fairfield House, which he purchased and later donated as a care home for the elderly. But even there, far away from his homeland, he continued his fight to oust the Italians. He inv- investigated the legality of their occupation of Ethiopia, and countered their propaganda as best he could. But it was the news he received of their desecration of houses of worship and the massacring of the civilian population that made him once more turn to the League of Nations for help, but to no avail. He did, however, find support in an unlikely place, the United States. What made it unlikely was that America maintained a strictly isolationist stance towards the mounting conflicts abroad at the time. Several humanitarian groups, particularly those of African Americans, donated money to the Ethiopian cause. And even more help was on the way. By early 1941, during the notorious East Africa campaign of World War II, British forces, particularly those made up of Ethiopian-backed Africans and colonial South African troops under the authority of one Colonel Ordi Wingate, drew up their plans along with Selassie himself to liberate Ethiopia. On January 18th that year, the emperor slipped back into the country via the Sudanese border. Two days later, the Ethiopian flag was flown in the capital of Addis Ababa, and Selassie led a force of his countrymen to meet Colonel Wingate's armies. They fought valiantly, ultimately defeating the Italians and causing them to retreat from Ethiopia altogether. On May 5th, five years to the day that Italy had invaded the country, the emperor returned to Addis Ababa once more and delivered a rousing speech to his people. Today is the day on which we defeated our enemy, he began. Therefore, when we say, let us rejoice with our hearts, let not our rejoicing be in any other way but in the spirit of Christ. Do not return evil for evil, he urged. Do not indulge in the atrocities which the enemy has been practicing in his usual way, even to the last." At long last, Ethiopia was free. Ironically, cruel and inhumane though they were with the Ethiopian populace, Italy had enacted strict anti-slavery measures throughout their East African holdings. Selassie, upon confirming the legal basis of Italy's abolitionism, imposed, for the first time under his reign, severe penalties, one of which was death for slave trading. This proved to be a major step forward for the country, as several monarchs prior to him had promised to end the practice, but never had. With the formation of the United Nations in the aftermath of World War II, Ethiopia became one of its charter members in 1948. Through it all, Selassie's dream of modernizing Ethiopia had never waned, though several reforms he introduced were met with opposition from the nobility. In 1942, for example, he proposed a progressive tax plan, but it was shot down in favor of a flat tax. He did, however, nine years later, reduce it. As the country was still semi-feudal, as it had been for centuries, each attempt at altering the socio-economic order was heavily resisted by both the nobility and clergy, who wished to keep their age-old privileges even after Italian occupation. Where the emperor was successful, however, was in the introduction of a new constitution in 1955. In it, he extended political participation to the people for the first time by allowing the lower house of parliament to become an elected body, though he himself retained effective power, of course. In addition, schools and modern educational instruction became more widespread throughout the empire. But despite these attempts at social change, Ethiopia's human rights record remained less than stellar, even abysmal. Even after experiencing firsthand the tyranny of Italian occupation, the oppression of some groups within the empire continued. In 1948, ironically the year that Ethiopia won charter membership in the United Nations, the Muslim community of Harar peacefully protested against the religious persecution they'd faced at the hands of the Orthodox Christian majority for decades. Selassie, though, responded by taking possession of their estates and assets and placed the entire community under house arrest— leading to a mass exodus of the Harari Muslims from the region for the first time in their history. The peasant class, too, challenged the emperor and his revised constitution, stating that it reasserted the, quote, indisputable power of the monarch and that it maintained their relative powerlessness, unquote. The late 1950s as well as the 1960s were marred by famine. Several hundred thousand people died from starvation as a result. As such, people became embittered with the government for not responding adequately. This, combined with high levels of unemployment, led to disillusionment, so much so that, by the early 1970s, several plans to end Selassie's rule had been proposed by a variety of different political groups and factions. In February of 1974, four days of rioting in Addis Ababa against a sudden economic inflation left five people dead. The emperor quickly responded with a televised broadcast, announcing a reduction in gas prices and a freeze on the cost of basic necessities. This temporary assuaged the public. But the military, unsatisfied with a 33% wage hike which he'd also proposed, mutinied, first in the city of Asmara, in what's now Eritrea, and then throughout the empire. The result of this mutiny was the Derg, a committee of low-ranking military officials and enlisted men with socialist leanings who, taking advantage of all the political upheaval taking place, deposed Selassie on September 12th that year he was placed under subsequent house arrest in the imperial palace and the following year supposedly died of respiratory failure at the age of eighty-three in the years since however it has been revealed that he was likely strangled by a member of the derg which had replaced the monarchy with a socialist regime Three years after this, the Derg themselves were toppled by the Soviet-backed People's Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, a communist government that finally fell in 1991. In all that time, the whereabouts of Selassie's body remained unknown. It wasn't until 1992 that his remains were discovered under a concrete slab on the palace grounds. On November 5, 2000, 25 years after his death, he was finally laid to rest at the Trinity Cathedral in Addis Ababa. To this day, Haile Selassie remains a controversial figure both in Ethiopia and abroad. Some see him as a national hero, namely for his actions against Italy before and during World War II. Others see him as nothing more than a tyrant, a typical monarch with little regard for the well-being of his people. Still others believe him to be a prophet. The Jamaican religion known as Rastafarianism, after his pre-imperial title, Ras meaning head in Amharic, and his born first name, Tafari, venerate him as a god incarnate. Known as the Lion of Judah, after his lineage from King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, it's believed that he will one day lead the African people, including those around the world, to freedom. No matter what one's opinion is of him, however, one can't deny the indelible mark he's left on the annals of history. As you can see, Haile Selassie's life and reign were complicated, to say the least. From questionable decisions as emperor to becoming a symbol of resistance throughout Africa and beyond, he's a multifaceted figure who, I feel, is often misunderstood and, all too often, taken at face value. As with history itself, there are many sides to a story, and especially when taking into consideration this complex man, it's imperative to hear them all in order to draw one's own conclusions. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. I admit I've been meaning to make this episode ever since I started this podcast over a year ago, but other topics have taken precedent. In addition, I knew little about Haile Selassie to begin with, and in my sporadic attempts at researching this most fascinating and elusive figure, I learned that people either love him or hate him. As such, I put it on the back burner for quite a while, but now, at long last, it's here. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned as much as I did about the last emperor of Ethiopia. If you enjoy this podcast and wish to support me to ensure future content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. Listening, liking, and sharing help too, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Join me again next week as we go behind the scenes of a revolt in ancient times that, had the outcome been different, one of the world's leading faiths would likely not have survived to the present day. Tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.